Today we're studying 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. These five verses, this paragraph, comes near the conclusion of a letter that Peter wrote to suffering Christians. Peter, of course, was Jesus' lead disciple, and he's writing to suffering Christians who have been scattered, probably from their homes near Rome, into modern Turkey. It's been, when Peter writes this letter, it's been about 30 years since he witnessed Jesus, since he was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, of Jesus' sufferings, of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Now, 30 years, he has been a, a pastor and a church planter throughout the Roman world. Peter knew what it was like to follow Jesus. He knew what it was like to follow Jesus inconsistently. He, as a disciple, wasn't always the, uh, the exemplar. Peter also knew what it was to follow Jesus, even though it meant insults, threats, imprisonment, facing, at one time in Acts, we know that he was under the threat of death. So Peter knew how to endure. I think it's critical that we remember this when we read this advice so that we don't just brush across it too quickly, but we let the weight of it fall on us. The passage that we read here today emphasizes the importance of humility and suffering. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5, the first half of it today. Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll look at the second half. Both of them are really emphasizing the critical importance of humility as the fuel for enduring suffering. This first paragraph focuses on the mindset that should control every Christian, a humble mindset. And the second paragraph really focuses on the habits of humility that grow out of that mindset. Just a quick reminder of last week, Peter had emphasized in really the summation of all of his teachings that we should just expect suffering. And we should, in fact, learn to rejoice in it because we know that God's using it. And while we're experiencing it, we should entrust ourselves or commit our lives to our faithful creator. He's just kind of crystallized all he's been saying to suffering Christians. And he writes, so, chapter 5, verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For, here he quotes Proverbs 3.34, For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and keep awake. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you, or we might say he has summoned you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, to the one who gives you strength to endure suffering and to bring you to glory, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In these final verses, Peter's climactic point really is that humility fuels endurance through suffering. Humility fuels Christian endurance through suffering. And, and every Christian should be, should be clothed, he uses the language, clothe yourself in verse 5. Every Christian should be clothed with a humble mindset. Humility fuels Christian endurance, and every Christian should be clothed with a humble mindset. This is his main idea. Now, humility refers to an accurate assessment of ourselves, an accurate assessment of ourselves. If we accurately see ourselves, we would see ourselves particularly in relation to God and others, as low. We are low and needy in relation to God. He is God. He is high. He is exalted. He is majestic. He is glorious, especially in his greatness and in his grace. And when we see ourselves rightly, we see that we are totally dependent on him for life and for salvation. Our lives are completely contingent on God's life. He is life. We derive our lives from him. Compared to him, just in terms of his being, he's great. We're not. He is life. We are not. We are dependent on him completely for life. He doesn't have to save us from our rebellion and our guilt. He has chosen to be gracious. He is the God of all grace, as this passage says. And we are the people who are in desperate need of God's grace. High, that's where God is. Low, that's where we should be in relation. And we should see ourselves, really, as other people's servants. We, we do not see ourselves as deserving all of the attention and all of the service of other people. No, we see ourselves as other people's servants. When we think of ourselves accurately, we think of ourselves as totally needy and dependent on God. And we are designed to image God in how we serve other people. We're humble. That's what it means. Humility just refers to acknowledging God's highness, his greatness, his grace, and, and our lowness by comparison, our utter dependence on him for everything. In day-to-day -day life, and particularly in suffering, so I take the definition of humility generally, and I start talking about why is Peter talking about it at the end of a letter on suffering? 
because humility is critical in suffering. It's, it's that if we have a humble mindset, then as we go through trial after trial, we manifest humility when we submit to God's rule over how our lives are going. When we basically let God be God. When we're willing to trust God that he has reasons and good reasons for doing what he's done. Even though we don't need to know them. We say, God, I can trust you. I don't need to get a report of what you're doing in order to evaluate you and say, checkmark, what you're doing, God, is okay. No, when we're humble, we're willing to trust God without all the reasons. And when we're humble, we're willing to be content with God's timing. We're willing to wait on him to get us out of the trial when he's ready to get us out of the trial. Do you see that humility is critical to suffering? This sort of humility is absolutely critical for suffering. Now, we read 11 verses. I pointed out that the first half describes the mindset of humility, and the second half that we'll get to, Lord willing, in in two weeks, focuses on the habits of humility. I just want to explore this mindset. And Peter, his instruction really informs us of the mindset. It fills out what the mindset is in four parts, okay? Four parts. The first one is this. We just need to notice how Peter models humility. Before he starts giving commands that we be humble, he personally models humility. It's interesting that he describes himself with three phrases in verse 1. The first one is he says, I'm a fellow elder. Now, in verse 1 of the first chapter, he had indicated that he was an apostle. He has apostolic authority, unique authority in all of history as one of Jesus' eyewitnesses. Peter had unique authority, but here he identifies himself as a fellow elder. And when he indicates himself as a fellow elder, he's basically saying, I'm not above any other pastor in any other church. I'm your peer. I can only imagine that Peter probably laughs and laments over the Christian, the professing Christian world today. Because there are hundreds of millions of professing Christians who name churches after him, who genuflect over his statues and paintings, and they even kiss the the ring of the fishermen. I think Peter laughs and laments. He's a fellow elder. He's on par. He's a peer. Pastors and other churches, you may remember that there were times in his life, in fact, quite a few of them, that he needed correction. Even as an apostle, he needed correction. Right? His second phrase by which he identifies himself as one who personally witnessed the Messiah's sufferings, the sufferings of Christ, the Messiah. Now, we actually don't know how much of Jesus's climactic sufferings Peter personally witnessed. For example, we don't know where he was in relation to the cross. 
We do know, at the very least, that Peter witnessed Jesus' sham trial in the house of Caiaphas. He witnessed Jesus' beatings there the night before his crucifixion, because it was also there that Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And you know that Luke's account of the gospel records that at one point in that trial, Jesus caught Peter's eye. And Peter was so grieved that he had denied even knowing Jesus of Nazareth that he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus had had also been in a lot of trials and a lot of sufferings through his life, whether it was hunger, sleeplessness, being on a boat in storms, facing rejection, facing mockery. Peter witnessed a lot of other sufferings than just the, the climactic sufferings. So when Peter refers to these sufferings, I can't help but realize that on the one hand, he's highlighting the fact that I'm following a suffering Savior, and I expect suffering to come to me as well because I'm following someone who suffered. So he's implicitly saying, I submit to whatever sufferings come my way. But I can't help but think that Peter is also calling to mind how frail he was in all of those sufferings. It's almost impossible to think of the sufferings of the Messiah without thinking of how weak Peter was. It's like the way the history unfolds every time Jesus is shown to be a strong sufferer. Peter is shown to be a weak follower. And I think Peter is implying very humbly that he struggles to suffer even as the Messiah heroically suffered. Thirdly, Peter describes himself as someone who's going to most certainly participate in the glory that will be revealed. This is, again, remarkably humble. Peter didn't live for glory now. He lived his life waiting until Jesus would return in all his glory. That's how he words it. He knew that there was suffering now and glory then, and Peter didn't think of himself as glorious. Peter didn't think, I hope that others see how awesome I am, and I hope that people around me just recognize how awesome I am. Peter thought, Jesus is the one full of glory, and it's wonderful for me to just be his follower, and I'm just waiting for his glory to shine. Peter knew he would be a participant in the glory when it, when it was revealed. He wasn't arrogant. He was humble. I think it's critical to notice Peter's remarkable humility even before he encourages us to be humble. A second facet of this encouragement toward a mindset of humility is all of us should listen as Peter commands humility for church leaders. In verses 2, 3, and 4, he commands humility for church leaders. Peter is a humble leader, and he urged humility for every church leader. I think you should first notice verse 1, he talks to the elders, and then in verse 2, He says, it's the elders who are to shepherd, or we might say pastor, and shepherds should oversee, or they should episcopate. That would be another term from which we get our word episcopacy, or uh, the episcopal church, the, the hierarchy of an episcopate, the oversight, the episcopate, okay? In Peter's mind, elders, pastor, and Episcopate, 
oversee. In Peter's mind, churches are not led by elaborate, multi-level structures of religious authority. They have very simple structure. Churches are led by a team of elders who shepherd and oversee. Peter saw it that way. Paul saw it that way as well in Acts 20. And here especially, Peter urges the elders of every congregation to care for God's flock of sheep. He says, especially, I want you to watch your spirit in how you care, in how you oversee. Watch your spirit. He's urging every leader of the church to manifest a spirit of humility. Let me point out, he actually gives three qualifications. First, he describes our mindset. It it shouldn't be one of slavery, but rather one of privileged service. You see that in verse 2? He says, Shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. In other words, you don't feel like you're a slave. Church leaders aren't like, I have to do this because my master's telling me. Instead, we do it willingly. That's the way God wants us to. We, we have the sense of like, I get to, not I have to. It's the same thing that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.1, where he says, we are ministers by mercy. I'm not entitled to be a pastor in this congregation. It's all of God's mercy that he's called me to be a leader in this congregation. That sort of, that sort of mindset should characterize church leaders. Secondly, he says, our motivation should not be money, but simply the joy of service. It is just such a privilege to, to know God and to serve God and his blood-bought sheep. Could there be any more privileged service? I'm eager to do that. If Jesus loved these people so much, what a privilege I have to love them as, as one of their leaders. That's humility. So it's this mindset of, I get to, I don't have to. It's this motivation. It's not about money. I do it without the money. And it's this manner, thirdly, where Peter says we should not be dictatorial, authoritarian. Instead, we need to focus on personal example. You see that in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It's this humble approach to leadership. Peter says leaders should be saying much more than obey me, watch me. Humble leadership should characterize churches. Again, in verse 4, Peter emphasizes the appearing of Jesus. He urges this humble approach to leadership in light of the day when, quote, the chief shepherd appears. And I think it's just critical that we note that title, chief shepherd. What's my role in this church? Am I the lead pastor? Am I the senior pastor? I understand that in terms of our leadership team, I I am the lead pastor. I gladly, I humbly accept that responsibility. But can I just let it go on record that I don't like to be called the lead pastor. I don't like to be called the senior pastor. I'd prefer the big cheese, 
Um, the big kahuna, maybe, maybe has a little bit more color to it. Yeah. <laughs> no, the reason I simply like pastor is because, according to this verse, I'm not the senior pastor. The church has one lead pastor. I'm not it. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and every lead pastor in every congregation is actually an assistant pastor, an under-shepherd, as people in English throughout history have said, an under-shepherd. I'm not the shepherd. I'm a shepherd under the shepherd. It's just critical that leaders have this mindset that we're not the chief, but we serve the chief gladly, willingly. We do it without pay. And when the chief shepherd appears, every faithful elder will be rewarded with glory. I think the crown is the glory. That's how I interpret it. But even if we are presented with literal crowns, I am certain on the basis of Revelation 4.10, we're going to be throwing them all at the feet of Jesus. Every one of our elders, myself first, we should be marked by exemplary, humble, willing, self-sacrificial, ministry-mindedness. This is what God demands of leaders. A whole church should be marked by humility. It's critical for enduring suffering. I just want to step back and I want to say, you may be in here this morning and you may be skeptical of Christianity. I'm not sure if you realize it, but there is a a lie that's pretty prevalent that says, you know, God's word is, is is a book that legitimizes authoritarian chauvinism. You know that's a lie? Now, to be clear, biblical history is full of authoritarian chauvinistic leaders. Biblical history is full of hypocrites. Biblical history is full of ungodly dictators. In fact, human history and church history since the Bible's time is full of these kinds of leaders. Hypocrites. Ungodly leaders. But do you know that actually the Bible... wonder some of you might might uh, write this for a research paper might use it in a in a speech that you have to defend I, I don't know here's a thesis for you try to come up with any influence outside of the bible that actually throughout history has checked authoritarian abusive leadership tyrannical leadership than the bible the bible's vision for leadership is service humble service and the hero of the bible is the most humble man who's ever lived the bible does not legitimize authoritarian tyrannical chauvinistic leadership it convicts it corrects it counsels directly against it And in every facet of life, God calls leaders to be humble and self-sacrificial. It's designed for his elders in the church, as we see in this passage. It's his design for husbands in marriage. It's his design for fathers in the home. 
humble, self-sacrificial leadership. And especially on Father's Day, I just want to say, if you have had a father who's been such a leader, thank God. Many of us have. We have many men in the congregation who have not had that sort of example of a father who was humble, self-sacrificial. And yet we have many men who, by God's grace, are right now seeking to blaze a trail and to break generational dysfunction in their family. And I just want to say it is one of my life's greatest privileges to know such men and to serve alongside such men who are courageously trying to break cycles of generational sin. A few weeks ago, in a midweek study, I mentioned the example of Tom Carson. He's had a profound impact on my life. Um, Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, his son wrote a book entitled Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflection of Tom Carson. Don, his son who wrote the book, is one of my favorite teachers and authors. Don's dad, Tom, who's pictured on the front cover of the book, served as an ordinary pastor in Quebec for 40 years. He actually served in three different churches in Quebec. He never pastored in those 30 years. He never pastored a church larger than 30 people. And occasionally he saw little encouragements. He actually didn't see any measurable growth through his influence until about 30 years into his ministry. And when that growth came, it was actually other men that Tom had worked with in ministry and in ministries that he had previously pastored in that saw the growth. It was never direct Like he was the pastor and he saw the growth through his work. His son says, dad always wrestled with a feeling of inferiority his whole life. He says at one point he wrote in his journal, this is his son writing, saying he was reading his dad's journals. I'm a weak pastor. I'm not concerned about the loss like I should be. And God must not be blessing our church because of my laziness. And his son says, dad was actually investing about 60 hours a week in the ministry, including over 10 hours a week personally with people. This humble pastor has impressed me and left a deep impression on my life. I would say he's become one of my life heroes. Here's the impression this dad, this pastor, left on his children. Don writes, throughout all his years, dad never had a study outside his home. Usually a single room in our home was reserved for the purpose, even though for one extended period of time this was sacrificed in order to care for his elderly mother-in-law. When the door to Dad's study was shut, we knew the kids were not to intrude because Dad was involved in prayer. His practice in private prayer was to kneel before the big chair that he used, and he would pray loudly enough to vocalize so as to keep his mind from wandering. Outside the door, we could hear him praying, even if we couldn't make out what he was saying. Don says, I remember countless days when he prayed for 45 minutes or more. Strange to say, at this juncture, I cannot really recall days when Dad didn't pray. Jim, this is Don's brother, 
He recalls barging into Dad's study unannounced one time and finding him on his knees praying and quietly backing out. Jim would write, That image has always remained with me, especially during my later rebellious teen years. While walking away from God, I could not get away from the image of a father on his knees praying for me. He says it's one of the things that eventually brought me back. At one point, I heard Don summarize his dad's life like this. He said, Dad was low pretensions, high performance. Don's dad thought very little of himself. He didn't really care what others thought of him, whether they thought of him as great or not. And at the same time, he was a man who just walked with God. He had a substantial walk with God for decades. And he had a simple strong, faithful example to those who knew him best that he was utterly dependent on God. That's the sort of leader God loves. One who's clothed with humility. We need to notice Peter's humility. We need to listen as he counsels church leaders to be characterized by humility. Third, we need to listen as he commands humility for younger church members. This is the first phrase of verse 5. He addresses leaders, and then he says, Now, if you're a church member who's younger, this echoes Greg's comments earlier in the service, who are the younger people. I'd guess Peter generally has in mind church members who are in their teens, 20s, and 30s. Generally speaking, those who don't have adult children who are out of the home, but, uh, but have, have younger children who are still in the home. That would be my guess. Peter just briefly stresses the need for younger people in the congregation to be marked by submissiveness to the church leaders, that they should be clothed with humility in this way. And I think this is because Peter knows that young people have a tendency toward pride. They tend to think of themselves as strong, invincible, independent, so much wiser than their parents. And so Peter urges the younger members of the congregation to just willingly submit themselves to the leader's authority. To be clear, if your leaders are asking you to sin or if they're overstepping the bounds of their authority and what they ask of you, do not submit. You must obey God rather than men. But Peter urges the younger in the congregation to be marked by humility. And then he lastly says, all of you, all of you, the whole congregation, obey this. Obey God's command to clothe yourselves with humility. This is the the final and really the climactic exhortation. He says, clothe yourselves with humility, indicating that it's almost like we put on clothing We should wear humility every day, all day long. We should put it on and wear it. Now, I know how to put on clothes, but how do you actually put on humility? How? Of course, he's he's using this metaphor, clothe yourself with humility, but okay, what does it mean? How do I do it? I think that Peter's going to actually answer that question in verses 6 through 11, which Lord willing we'll get to in two weeks. But for now, let me simply suggest that humility, it's why I shared Tom's example, 
Humility largely comes through consistent biblical prayer. Because prayer acknowledges God's sovereignty. Prayer seeks God's forgiveness. Prayer yearns for God's glory. Prayer depends on God's provision. Every one of those things is humble. Humble, humble. I humbly acknowledge that God is God and I'm not. I humbly acknowledge that I need his forgiveness and I humbly want him to be glorified. He must increase, I must decrease. And God, I'm dependent on you for everything. I am humbly acknowledging that I'm not independent but entirely dependent. Prayer is the chief way we clothe ourselves with humility and that's why Peter goes there in verses 6 and 7 in particular. At the end of verse 5, Peter quotes Proverbs 3 to emphasize why we should clothe ourselves with humility. It's because, according to God, those who are actually proud invite God's resistance. And it is a colorful kind of resistance. The way the NIV puts it is, the Lord mocks the proud mockers. But he gives grace to the humble. This doesn't mean that humble people earn God's grace. You can't earn God's grace. Grace can't be earned. But a humble person is the sort of person that God can relate with. Can't help but think that Peter must have in mind Isaiah 57, where God says, This is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, the one whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. God can't live with someone who thinks I'm awesome. If only people would recognize it. Do you know what God thinks of people like that? He laughs. <laughs> he, he thinks he's awesome. <laughs> she thinks she's awesome. Or what if you're someone who says, I can't trust God unless I know why he's doing what he's doing. In order for me to really trust him, I need to know why. You know what God thinks? (laughs) They're trying to be me. Have they forgotten who they are? Yes, we have. The Lord mocks the proud mockers. Do you know someone who thinks, I need to be in control? Do you know what God thinks of that? He thinks it's hilarious. It's it's mock-worthy. You need to be in control. I think we can hear the words echoing that he said he, he said to Job. Where were you when I created the world? Who do you think you are? But when someone is humble, And we accurately think, I'm God's creature under God's sovereign rule. I'm dependent on God for life and salvation. And I hold God's word, which is enough for me. It's all I need. 
When we have that kind of humble recognition, God can dwell with us because we're, we're rightly thinking about him and us. And toward a person who's thinking humbly, God can assure us he's truly God and that satisfies us. And God can remind us of all of his promises that are most certainly true and we can be revived in our strength when we're acknowledging we're not God. We don't need to be. We can trust God. I want to end by simply asking, how are you doing when it comes to humility? If you're not humble, you're not going to endure suffering well. In fact, you may not endure at all. If you're right now in the middle of suffering and you are insisting that God ended on your timetable and you are insisting that God explain to you everything he's done and you are insisting that God answer your prayers exactly how you ask them, you may not endure. But if you continually are saying, God, you're God, and that's enough for me. You made me. You must have a purpose for my life. And if you made the galaxies, then I can, I can imagine that you might have reasons for doing things I can't understand. And God, I can trust you. God, there are many people in the scripture that died without ever understanding why you did what you did. And if that's me, I commit myself to suffering like that because you, God, are trustworthy. You need to be humble in suffering or you may not endure. Now, if you're not a Christian, I ask an even more fundamental question. How do you think it's going to go on Judgment Day when your Creator evaluates you on the basis of humility? How's it going to go when the God who, who knows your heart evaluates you? When the, the God who made you for himself evaluates your life, you come to realize that he's known all along that you've lived your whole life really trying to be in control. And you've lived your whole life not submitting to God's clear word. And you've lived your whole life really seeking your own goals. Do you know that it will not go well for you on that day? The Lord mocks the proud mockers. What you need today is not to just try to be more humble. It's not what you need. You need to decisively humble yourself before the Messiah. You need to recognize that the chief shepherd, the greatest human who has ever lived, humbly submitted himself to bear the punishment that you deserved. And if you call out to him, he can forgive you and wash you clean of all of your arrogance, of all of your rebellion. The chief shepherd humbly sacrificed himself as the lamb. Great glory. You see, at the heart of Christianity, in fact, at the heart 
of world history is humility. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would use your word in this weak attempt at magnifying the humility, the glorious humility of Jesus. Use it to draw people to become followers of Jesus. Use it, Father, in the hearts of your sheep to lead them to follow Jesus no matter how hard the way. Jesus, be exalted because there is no one like you. Amen.